0: So these recent tragic events that weigh so heavily on our hearts all stem from what God calls sin. That in the very beginning you have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We call that the Godhead. And out of the overflow of their own joy, they put together creation and it is good. I mean like they nailed it. It is good. And we see this this rhythm to creation like music. That as God is creating, he creates this and that and this, and every single time he's creating, we're told that it is good, that it is good, that it is good. There's this, this rhythmic uh, beat to creation as we watch the Godhead paint a beautiful creation on this once-blanked canvas. And in the middle of creation we have shalom. It's this Hebrew word that the Bible uses to describe perfect peace. It's, it's this rhythm that we see is being created in all of creation, that everything is in rhythm. If you've ever listened to music like we just did here, when you know when everybody's like playing their part and the singers are in harmony and melody and everything's working together, there's this this beautiful sound in our ears that is pleasing and nice. And yet, when one dude is off, you know it, don't you? Like, you don't even have to be musical. You just, you just know that the rhythm is off, that you can hear it, that you can, that you can sense it. And as we read Genesis chapter one, we see in the Hebrew that the language around it is this rhythmic language, as if God wants us to see and experience harmony in everything that He's put together. In the next scene, we see God creating a man named Adam and a woman named Eve, and he places them in the garden, and he tells them, look, I want you to go forth, and I want you to be fruitful, and I want you to multiply, and I want you to enjoy this entire world, which is absolutely awesome. And then he says, and there's this one rule, don't eat from the tree. Be fruitful, multiply, enjoy everything, one rule. And let's be honest, it's not even that tough of a rule, is it? Like, it's not like be kind or be nice, right, with all this gray. Like, there's a million ways to be kind or to be nice. Like, not even that at all. Like, Like, it's a simple rule. Be fruitful, multiply, enjoy the earth, don't eat from the tree. Now, I imagine that for some of you, you might be, you might come into this and be a little bit skeptical of the faith, or religion, or God, or however you would say that, and I just want you to know that at Crossroads, skeptics are welcomed. That I welcome, that we welcome your candid questions, and maybe you're thinking today to yourself as we go through the story is, is, why would God even put the tree in the garden to begin with? Like, Why would he even put it there and put this one rule? Well here's what I think, I think that the reason for it is because our ultimate joy comes from our obedience. That when we do good, the way the Creator defines it, then that's where we find joy. And on top of that, we know that God is a God of love, and that for God, for love to be meaningful, for love to be meaningful, that it that it needs to be real. It needs to be voluntary. That God did not want to create us as as like robots. But instead, he gave us the ability to choose, which of course also means that we can choose not to love him as well. Well, if you know the story, unfortunately, this man and this woman show about as much resistance to this temptation as a four-year-old in front of a, you know, a bowl of Skittles, and Eve Eve takes the fruit, her tool of a husband stands there passively, and the serpent starts to spill out lies. He says, God doesn't want you to eat from this tree because he knows that if you eat the fruit from the tree, then you'll be better than him. You'll be a better God than him. He doesn't want that for you. And Eve, looking at the fruit, knowing that it's pleasurable to her eye, she bites into it. Her tool of a husband follows. And outright rebellion is declared against the king. And in that moment, in that moment, the cosmos fractures. All of the rhythm, all of the harmony, all of the shalom, all of the peace that infiltrated every level of creation becomes fragmented. Including, and most importantly, humanity's relationship with God. That mankind has wronged God and now there's this gulf between mankind and him. We move from that story of one man, Adam, and one woman, Eve, to the story of their children. We're introduced to Cain and Abel, and Cain and Abel come on the scene, and we're introduced to them where Abel is bringing his offering in trust and obedience to God, and God accepts that offering. His brother Cain brings the scraps to God, and God rejects Cain's offering. Cain, in his rage, deceives his brother Abel, ultimately murdering his brother Abel. And in that moment, we see that the sin of our lives doesn't just affect our relationship with God, but actually damages our relationship that we have with each other. And as if we needed to be reminded of the consequence of our sins, we see through the genealogies of Genesis chapter 4 and 5, the new creation rhythm of death. We read over and over again that so-and-so lived X amount of years and then he died. So-and-so lived X amount of years and and then he died and then he died and then he died and then he died. We enter into the sixth chapter of Genesis and we read these sobering, heartbreaking words in Genesis chapter six, verse five. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every intention, ever only evil continually. And then we read, we read these sobering words in verse 6. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his hearts. This amazing God looked out on the creation that he had made, the very good creation that had been created to bring about his glory, ever only his glorious being, continually his glory, and he's horrified by what his image bearers have done. And these words echoed from our God that should absolutely bring us to our knees and fill our eyes with tears as he says, I am sorry that I have made them. My God, what have we done? What have we done? War mongering, mass shootings, trafficking, hunger, pollution, greed, terrorism, genocide. We cannot escape the pressing reality that this is not a perfect world that the creation rhythm is completely broken. And we see how sin has such big time consequences in the world that we look upon with horror. And while we don't like to think this way, the reality is, is that my sin, your sin has contributed to God's original rhythm in the creation being completely broken. It's this reality as to why at some times we feel so disconnected to God. It's why at times we we try to feel connected, and yet it just feels like like there's something between us and God because there's literally something between us and God. That literally your willful disobedience is in the way. It is the cord that you trip over as you try to walk to him. That we've been in this series called Shifting Gears where we've looked at what it means and tried to discover what does it look like to connect with God. That the premise of this entire series has been that for most all of us, the assumption is, is that we believe that there's a God out there, we believe that that God is good, we believe that that God is loving, and that that God wants to have a relationship with us, that that God wants to be connected with us. And yet as we try and try and try, as we live our lives and try to connect with him, we never feel like we actually connect with him the way that we desire to do so. And so this entire series, we've been looking at the question of going, what if you could connect with God in meaningful ways every moment of your day, every moment of your life? Like, could that be possible? And so we've been talking through this and the shifting gears, and we've been using this tool called the five gears from Giant Organization. And just to bring you up to speed, if you're new, just where we've been the last couple of weeks, in week one, we looked at gear one, which is the recharge mode. This is where we go to refresh. This is what the Bible calls Sabbath, that this is foundational, really, to our connection with God, understanding that we put aside our work achievement and just rest in being in God. That we're not about doing, it's about being in God. Week two, we looked at gear two, which is connection mode. This idea that every single day that we actually have the opportunity to go to God and to pray, to speak to, to talk with, to listen to the God of the universe. Then gear three is the social mode. This is this amazing truth that we looked at with Pastor Chris that that God actually wants to be our friend, that God calls us his friends. Then gear four is the task mode. It's where we live most of our life, going to the post office, dropping our kids off at work, you know, dropping to school, you know, the stuff that we have going on at work. And that the real truth of the scriptures is that God wants to be shotgun in all of that with us. Like he wants to be riding next to us in every aspect, even the mundane aspects of our lives. And last week we looked at gear five, which is the focus mode. And we, we really discovered together the spiritual disciplines of prayer and journaling, solitude, fasting, these things that we do with deep focus that bring us into Deeper connection with God. And today, as we step into what we have, we're going to look at reverse or the responsive mode together, or what the Bible calls repentance. The Bible calls repentance. Now, the way that I want to set this up for us to try to help us kind of understand what reverse is all about is I want you to imagine for a moment that you are driving a car that does not have reverse, all right? So you're driving down the road, you have a car that doesn't go in reverse, and all of a sudden you have a hankering for the how did they make it so good chicken sandwich from Chick-fil-A, and you pull into one of their crazy parking lots, and before you pull into a spot, you pause strategically to think, how am I going to do this? Like, I can't back up right? I can't, I just can't will out and move forward, like the only thing that I can do is is go forward. So strategically you have to find a parking spot that works for you in this. Now I realize that this example might be a little far-fetched, probably very few of us have ever been in a car that doesn't go backwards, doesn't go in reverse, but the reality is, is this is exactly how most of us live our lives. As if reverse doesn't actually exist. That we pretend it's not there, we don't practice it. Reverse is the concept between being responsive versus being resistant. Now let me define those two terms for you. Now when it comes to being a responsive person, what I mean by being responsive is, is a responsive person is someone who is totally aware of who they are and how they affect other people particularly when they infringe upon them, when they offend them, when they cause harm to them, that a responsive person is quick to throw it in reverse, to make apologies, to make amends for their actions in the way that they've harmed other people. And if that harm is deep enough, they actually will come with a plan and say, this is how we can rebuild trust together. That's a responsive person. On the other side of the coin is what we would call a resistant person. And a resistant person comes along, and, and they say things like, you're overreacting, you're so sensitive, that oftentimes they, they point out that, that it's your fault. Like, if you hadn't acted that way, I wouldn't have ever responded this way. And they, they roll through life. They roll through life, and they don't know how badly their words and their actions are impacting others. And in the end, they don't really care. Because they got what they wanted, regardless of what it cost someone else. Now, pretty quickly, I can imagine that all of us have like a picture in our mind or a face, or we can name a name of people who are both responsive and people who are resistant in our life. Those type of people that when they bring harm or offend or or you know uh, or you know in those moments where they kick it into reverse and they back up as fast as they can with an apology and those people who are resistance, who drive in, around, and through people as if reverse doesn't even exist. And we all know the devastating effects of not putting our lives into reverse at times. We know the effects that it has on our families, don't we? Our friends, our coworkers, that every single one of us have have most likely been on the wrong end when someone didn't put it into reverse, and we know the devastating effects that it has on our relationship. We know the devastating effects that it has on our connection with that person and whether we want to admit it or not our ability to shift into reverse and do what the Bible calls repent when it comes to our sin has a direct impact on your ability to connect or reconnect with God That we probably don't walk through life thinking of it this way But your ability to shift into reverse when it comes to your relationship with God has a direct impact on your ability to connect or reconnect with the God that you so long to connect with us. And when it comes to this idea of repenting and repentance in the Scripture, that this is a pretty huge topic when we open the Bibles. In fact, when you open up your New Testament, you'll see pretty quickly that Jesus' ministry was one that focused on Repentance. As we read through the Gospels, we see that Jesus says some pretty surprising things from time to time. And maybe one of the most surprising things is actually found in Luke chapter 13. If, if you have your Bible, you can certainly open there. We'll put a few verses that we're going to look at today. But in Luke chapter 13, what's going on is that Jesus gets word of this massacre of people called the Galileans that there's this mass killing that happens among the Galileans and everybody's talking about it. The politicians are talking about it. The leaders are talking about it. The everyday people are talking about it. And some begin to assume that the reason that this massacre, this mass killing happened among the Galileans is because they weren't good enough. They weren't upright. They weren't holy, the thinking went. That if they just acted better, if they were just more holy, then this would never happen to them. That this, that this, wouldn't, this wouldn't come upon them the way that it did. And Jesus steps in with one of his most shocking statements. He totally disagrees, and he responds like this in chapter 13, verse 3. He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise Perish. Jesus says the problem is that everyone is sinful before God. That everyone has has broken the relational rhythm between them and God. And therefore, every single one of us is headed towards God's eternal judgments. And according to Jesus, the solution to this massive problem of the relational brokenness, of us heading towards God's judgment, his his wrath isn't to improve one's behavior, but rather it is to repent. The calling to repentance is is the reason that Jesus came. A little bit earlier in Luke chapter 5, verse 32, Jesus says this: when somebody asks him, like, why did he come? He answers this: I have not come to call the who? The righteous. But rather, I've called to come to I've called the sinners to what? To repentance. Jesus says, I didn't, I didn't come for people who think that they're good enough, for people who think they're walking in holiness, for people who think they're righteous. That's not who I've come to save. That I've come to save those who know that they're not good enough, to know who they're, that they're sinners in a need of repentance. So the question then becomes, if our relationship our relational rhythm with God is broken, if all of creation is fractured and we experience that, and the way back is towards repentance, what does repentance look like? What is Repentance. Well, if we're going to get to the heart of repentance, we're going to need to go deeper than just sorrow for sin. We're going to need to go deeper than saying sorry for our mistakes. We're going to, go, we're going to need to go deeper than simply changing our outward behavior. That repentance entails all of that, but that's the outcome of repentance. That's not repentance. See, so when it comes to the heart of repentance, repentance begins with a change of perception and a change of direction. That's what repentance is. It's a, it's a change of perception, a change of your mind, and a change of direction. So when it comes to repentance, let's start with the first one. Let's start with the change of perception. That there's a changing of our mind that needs to happen when we begin to repent, where we begin to see God as he actually is. True, beautiful, worthy of our praise, worthy of our obedience. That we see God as this worthy, almighty, awesome, good, holy God. We see him for who he is, and in turn, we start to see our sin for what it is. Disgusting, repulsive, deadly. That every moment it is pushing us further and further and further away from the God that we desire to connect with. That repentance begins with a change of your mind, a change of perception where you start to see from God's perspective, where you start to see from someone who has been impacted by your unhealthy words and behaviors towards them. But it doesn't just stop with this change of minds. It results really in a change of direction. It's a commitment to a change in direction, an about face, a a total uh, reorientation of our of our lives. The change of direction is where you is where you run away, where you run away from the passing pleasures of sin, and into the all satisfying arms of God. It's where you run away from death, and into a purposeful life that you never even knew existed that when I was in college, I went to school in Omaha, Nebraska, and one uh, April, my roommate and I, we decided that we were gonna go to opening day for the Royals, that we were gonna make the four hour drive from Omaha to Kansas City and enjoy Major League opening day. Now, even though I grew up playing baseball, I never actually went to a Major League opening day before, and so I was really excited for just the excitement and celebration and festivity around opening day. And so we got into our seats and, and enjoying the game, and then the best part of the game is that we found out that Krispy Kreme had gone into partnership with the Kansas City Royals and any time during that year if the Royals scored six runs that the whole stadium got six free donuts each person with the, you know the showing of their ticket and wouldn't you have it on that opening day the Kansas City Royals beat the Minnesota Twins ten to six free donuts for everybody And so we head out of the stadium, we find someone, we get some directions to the Krispy Kreme that's giving away these donuts, and we take off in pursuit of our donuts. Well, somehow, somewhere, we got lost. Like, we didn't know Kansas City very well. And so we're completely lost, not knowing where we're going. And so we get on the interstate. And we're flying down the interstate, and we're looking at the interstate signs, you know, that tell you, like, here's the restaurants that are coming up, just in, like, wishing for, like, the iconic emblem of Krispy Kreme to be on one of those. And the thing that couldn't have helped us was going faster in the same direction, but that's what we did. And after driving for what felt like an eternity, Kansas City was getting further and further away from us and Independent Missouri was getting closer and closer. And eventually we get to Independence, we call quits, we find a barbecue joint, we eat some uh, dinner together, and then we did what we should have done at the very beginning. We turned around and started going back. And as we were traveling back, we got near the stadium where the Royals play. And wouldn't you know it that on the exact same exit, on the north side of the exit, was the Krispy Kreme that we had been looking for, for what felt like hours in that place. That whole experience perfectly reflects something that C.S. Lewis said. He said this, that we all want progress. But if you're on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. In that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive. Listen, Jesus' solution to the problem of our broken relational harmony, that the problem of our sin, is radical. It's not improve your behavior by going faster in the same direction that you're heading, but instead he says stop. Turn around, see God for who he is, and change your entire direction. In Luke chapter 13, the people seem to think that the problems with the Galileans is that they were not holy enough. They weren't good enough. But Jesus says the real problem is that every single one of us, every single one of us is blind to God's glory. That we are blind to God's glory and we are turning away from him. We are resistant toward him. And when it comes to that, we even refuse to admit it. That we are resistant towards God and we refuse to admit it. Hear me on this. The critical difference between someone who is saved and someone who is not saved. The critical difference from someone who's going to heaven and someone who doesn't go to heaven. The critical difference is not how relatively good you are. It's not how relatively good you are. It's whether or not that you've admitted that you're not good, especially in light of God's holiness and his goodness and reverse the entire direction of your life. But the reality is that for most of us, even after conversion, even as Jesus followers, we struggle to see God for who he is and orientate our entire lives around him, don't we? I mean, I've experienced it in my own life. You probably have as well. That on those mornings when when I make time for God, when I'm shifting into the five gears, when I start my day with devotion, that it's pretty easy for me, it's pretty easy for me to avoid temptation. I'm not as prone to temptation in my life. And I'm much more aware of God's presence in my everyday life. That when I'm shifting into these gears, when I'm really connecting with God, that I'm so aware of his presence. But when I give myself over to the the passing pleasure of sin in my life, when when sin catches my eyes and I start to pursue it rather than God, then prayer, man, it's so hard, isn't it? Making time to read the scriptures, difficult. Difficult. Engaging in church feels like a burden. Joy in Jesus so remote. When I think about that kind of living, I'm reminded of, of one of the scariest verses. I think it's the scariest verse. If you're a married man, this is the scariest verse in all of Scripture. I just want to welcome you into my world. Here it is, First Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Now, this is so full, and we'll talk about this one day. I just want you to see this next line. Husbands, live with your wives in this way, so that your prayers may not be... Hindered. To which we go, what? Like, like Peter, what's going on here? And Peter says, Yeah. The way that you treat your wife affects your relationship with God. That your ability, your ability to to glorify God in the way that you treat your wife has a direct impact on your relationship with God. What you choose to do or choose not to do affects your relationship with God. God. Now hear me carefully on this. I want to make sure that I'm, that I'm careful in this moment. For those of us who are in Jesus who are saved, that we cannot make God love us any more than he already does. After all, God first loved us when we were still in our sins, that he didn't love us because we were holy or good or, or anything like that. He loved us because of Jesus. He loved us because of, because of Jesus. And this is true for you even if you haven't experienced saving faith yet. That God's love is not contingent on our actions. He loves you regardless of what you do. But what you do can cause emotional distance between you and God. This whole series is about connecting with God and what it looks like to connect with God. Listen, trying to do good won't connect us to God, nor will just feeling sorry for our sins or even, or even becoming a more moral person. Those are all important things to do, but they all flow from true repentance on their own. None of them go deep enough. None of them, none of, none of them go deep. See, one of the greatest promises in all of Scripture we find in 2 Chronicles it's a pretty famous verse, particularly in light of what's happened the last couple of weeks. This is chapter 7, verse 14. It says, If my people who are called by my name, that's us, by the way. If my people are, who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face, do the things, right? The shifting of the gears that we've been talking about. If we're truly looking to connect with God and doing the things that we can do to connect with God, he says, and turn from their wicked ways, that's our sin if we're connecting with God, humble, turning from our sin, then God says, I'll hear from you. I'll hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sins. I will forgive your sins, and I will heal their nation. This verse paints such a beautiful picture for me of God. It paints this picture because, because I don't see God in this verse standing up there with his arms crossed, looking down on the earth, you know, with a scowl on his face. And instead, what we have painted for us in this verse is that God draws near draws near to our, to our penitent hearts, that God draws near when there's general contrition for the sin that we've caused, that we do not need to bring God promises, these mere promises of simply doing better. We need to come to God and bring penitent hearts for where we ask him to cover our disgust, our disgrace, our sin, and pour upon us fresh mercy that flows from the cross that Jesus died to take away all of our sins. We need to see the beauty and the love and the holiness of God, perceiving him as the treasure, the true treasure that he actually is in this world. And we need to turn away from the false promises that sin offers us and completely reorient our direction towards the God who loves us. This is what repentance is. This is what we call the gospel. The gospel in Greek just means good news, and if there's good news, there's obviously bad news. And hopefully, if i articulated well enough for you what the bad news is, that your sin is causing death in your life, and you will perish. That's the bad news. But the good news is that God loves you so much that he, that he wouldn't leave you there, that he looks at his son and says, son, go rescue him. And Jesus comes in and he lives this perfect, amazing life. And he gives his life up for for us on the cross. And that whoever confesses and believes in their heart, bows before the cross, that we will be saved, that we're made children of God. That that's the gospel. Luke 19.10 says that Jesus didn't come into this world. Jesus came into this world to save those who were lost. Jesus came into this world for those who were driving fast in the direction that they were already heading, that Jesus came to save. And that salvation, what that looks like is where we agree with God that our sin is horrible and that we're deserving of ultimate punishment for us, but that we believe that Jesus came and he died to offer us forgiveness and to give us the spirit in order to put our sin to death. And while we certainly vow to turn from it, we do so only in his strength, his forgiveness, his acceptance that he provides through his grace alone. See, so throughout this entire series, we've tried to remind you every week, every week, that being in these five de- gears every day is to your benefit. In fact, that if, if, you're not in these, if you're not in these gears, you're actually missing out on something in life. And if you're here today, If you're here today, and you don't feel the connection with God that maybe you desire in your life, could it be because God is waiting for you to put yourself into reverse and repent for your sins and to come to him? Would you pray with me? Father, we... Father, we acknowledge your goodness and your holiness. Lord, we realize the world and the way that you made it and the way that our sin has destroyed it. And God, we realize time and time again the destruction that we wreak not only on the the creation, but the destruction of relationship between, between us and you, between each other. And God, we're reminded of it every single day on the news. And so Lord, I pray today that we would be a people humble enough to come to you confessing our sins, Lord, that we would lean on the promise that John wrote in his letter that those who confess their sins, that you, God, are righteous and true to forgive us of our sins. And so, Lord, we lean on that today. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness. God, I pray for those in the room who who maybe have not yet experienced true saving grace. Lord, that as we walk through this teaching today, Lord, that maybe you are speaking to their hearts of the sin that was going on and does go on in their lives. And Lord, I believe that that whisper to their spirit, the acknowledgement of that is is your spirit speaking to theirs, that you're whispering and calling them to you for life. And so, Father, I pray that that in these moments, Lord, no matter where we're at with you, that before we go to communion, that we just take these couple of silent moments, Lord, for you to surface the sins of our lives, for you to bring them up for us to see, not in shame, but in forgiveness, in confession in repentance. And so, Lord, do your work in us right now. thank you for not turning away from us in our despair and in our ugliness but coming to run to come and get us. You truly are a good and great God as we remember communion today, God. I pray that it would be a humble act of your people professing their sin before you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. That we come together today and communion as a church and in doing so we realize the true cost of our sin the brokenness of the harmony in the world what it took to return rhythm back between us and God that it was Jesus on the cross whose body was broken and doing so he said this is my body broken for you remember me each time you eat of it and so today we remember And it was Jesus who took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. This is the forgiveness of your sins. And so today we remember and we celebrate that our sins have truly been forgiven. As we continue in our worship, we're gonna pray and we're gonna sing. And so if you need prayer, I'd encourage you to go to the one of the banner over here. We'll have people to pray for you online. You can click the button. I'm gonna ask everybody in house to stand as we sing the song of repentance to the glory of God today.